Hi everyone, it's Joaquim Makren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast. Podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. This week on the podcast, I'm talking with Jenny Shu, the co-founder and CEO of Talofa Games, a fitness games company based out of California. Jenny is a first-time founder with an impressive background from working on games as a teenager, getting millions of downloads, then spending time at Google, EA and Network. And then she went on to start her own venture-backed gaming startup. In this discussion, we talk about Jenny's journey, how she got into gaming, learning to work in teams, managing teams, and the things she's learned from being a CEO. All right, we're recording. Hi, Jenny. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Sure. It's going to be good. There's so much to talk about here, and we talk about your company now. But like, first off, I wanted to to hear about your origin story. And can you tell me how you made your way into gaming and to, to found your own games company? I actually never really started out thinking that I would be in games. I fell into it. And I'd say a lot of the, the reason and why it happened was because I loved art growing up. So like I loved Pokemon, playing games. And as a result, I got really obsessed with drawing fan art and drew a lot of Pokemon fan art specifically, but I really loved expressing my love for different anime series through posting my art online. I got really into the site called deviantart.com where it's an art community. I think these days maybe a little less prominent, but I was very active on the site and basically went from posting on MS Paint, like my art from MS Paint to getting a little better at digital art and even picking up a copy of Adobe Flash when I was 12. And that is pretty much what set me off on creating my first game. I was Google searching how to actually make a button. And after making my first button, I was like, why can't this button move and be a part of a little mini game? And that spiraled into me learning a new line of code every other day, not really knowing that was code. And I would post a new Pokemon fan game every other day on my deviantart.com. And really that obsession with creating art turned into creating games and kind of throughout middle school, high school, college, I ended up making almost a hundred different flash game experiences that went on various sites online. And it was still very new at the time. So I was very lucky. The mobile game era also started to pick up around the time I was in high school. So I took a lot of my flash games, ported them to mobile, ended up making 10 mobile games that got close to over 10 million downloads even before I went to college. So it was seeing that all these YouTubers, all these people online were talking about the stuff I'd built. And I was this like introverted child who didn't know anything and had no shame. I was just posting stuff I liked. So yeah, that journey for me was validating in a way. And I was like, this is something that I seem to be good at. Like, can I do this for life? Like, could this be my job? But nobody around me at the time was doing games and nobody seemed to think it was a career path. People were just talking about tech and I grew up in the Bay area. So tech was the job path that people took. So I didn't think much of it, but ended up getting into MIT, studied computer science, wanted to use that to make even better games and was also recruited onto their cross-country track and field team. So I loved running and I loved 
making games and these two things almost went in parallel for a long time until I ended up graduating college. And that's essentially when I really started to consider gaming as a, as a path. So <laughs> that was a very long-winded way of just saying that I, I kind of fell into it and people loved the things I was making. So I felt like this was somewhere that I belonged. Yeah. Like I remember we, we talked for the first time a couple of months ago and you, you told me all, all about your background and it felt like, yeah, I, I actually had same kind of experience growing up, going through back before World Wide Web kind of days through like building stuff and then like eventually putting stuff online as well. But yeah, the, it, it sort of led me to go to the entrepreneur path. It, it feels like you, you've had the same steps taken there in your, your early career to actually lead mm-hmm. to you to, to start a company. So you're now an entrepreneur. You have your own games company. Can you introduce the company in your own words? To go a little bit back as well, like even before the company, I, how it got started from the point that I graduated from college as well. And right. super cool as well that you have a similar background. And I think that the way that the company started actually is helpful in understanding what it is now. But really, yeah. I think back when I was even just creating games for the first time, like I was making a lot of like horror comedy games, like very experimental stuff. Like if you've ever played Doki Doki Literature Club, like kind of the weird juxtaposition of cute and creepy was my, the place I thrived. And I found a huge niche there. Like mm. one of my games, it was called Jump Scare Factory. It was like on, because of the strange niche blowing up in 2014, 2015 ish, I, my game was a small little game made in a couple of weeks as like the top eight game, top free game on the Google Play Store for like a couple weeks. And that was the first time that I saw like such a big psych of people playing my games. So even when starting Tolofa, like I'd say the experimental nature and like the hitting a niche or a genre that not a lot of people might feel like they have content for. Like there's a lot of people like me who love horror comedy or like niches that people aren't making games for. So that is what I realized I had a real specialty in. And this love of fitness and this love of gaming, I had never combined before. It was, I only combined horror and comedy, but fitness and gaming was very new and I hadn't seen much of it, but I was very, very much excited about it because I loved both things. And I played almost every single fitness game out there because I was like, I just want more things to do as I'm working out and I love working out. So really Talofa started because this intersection I thought was so interesting, but I couldn't find opportunities to either see a way to fund fund myself working on this as like a full-time career. Like can't justify it. My Asian parents were like, get a job in tech, go back to Google. Cause I had interned at Google in the summer before I graduated and I loved my team there. So it was totally an option, but I ended up I competing in this Niantic contest that happened back in 2019. They had a worldwide developer contest and that really kickstarted a lot of this because I wouldn't have entered that contest if I had taken a job and I saw that as a way to still justify me trying my hand at games. I was like, this is my last chance to try something in games. 
And then if this doesn't work out, I'll get a real job. And we ended up participating in that, dragged my dad and my brother in because they required a minimum team size of three. And we all love fitness and gaming. So they are all runners. And my dad less of a gamer, but my brother loves games. And as a team of three, really two, because my brother was a voice actor for our project. I mean, my dad really pushed through and winning that contest really made the biggest difference for us. It seeded us with like $300,000 right out the gate, like right out of college. I was like, this is a lot of money and allowed us to build the studio. So at Tolofa very much is still the same kind of vision that we had, even when we entered that contest, which is making fitness more fun and rewarding and really seeing the that there's this opportunity in the wellness space to make and introduce like some of these game design techniques and just even just bringing gaming in a way that feels more integrated with like health and and wellness. So our our first game is along those lines, we're creating a fitness battle game where you move to win. And we want to use our games as a way to almost just build a platform where people can come in like have a fun time with their friends, but then come out being way healthier on the other end. So transforming wellness and seeing if there's a way to combine these two things that people don't often think is is very easy to integrate, which is like fitness and gaming. Yeah, amazing. Like you talked about niche there, like the the idea of having these niche areas on mobile. To me, it feels like a mobile whatever you pick, like jump scare games, for instance, like there's always going to be a million people there waiting for that thing. What do you think about like building a fitness game in the fitness niche? Is it even a, a niche? Like how would you describe that? Yeah, yeah. And agreed. The invention of smartphones and just having them, everyone has them. Like I used to, when I was making flash games for a PC, it was a lot harder to share what I was building because I'd have to pull out my laptop and be like, hey, you want to play my thing? And that was very clunky. And now with games, like I just tell my friends, like at a, if I'm at an event, they can just download it right there. And like a lot of my friends will just download it on the spot. So that's been really cool to see. I'd say fitness games is more of a unsolvent space than necessarily a niche. I think there's a lot of people in the world who love who would love the idea of a great fitness game. And I'm one, but it's just that you can't find many. That's why I think it's a niche because there aren't that many people developing in the space or haven't historically compared to people making shooters or even people making educational games. I feel like there's a lot more of those and there are fitness games. So building in this space is something that I think takes a lot of bravery <laughs> because there aren't many things you can draw patterns to. And I also saw that in terms of like pitching for a fitness game is when you point to the most successful fitness game, I'd say two years ago, there weren't a lot that you could point to. And only recently have I seen more of them start to come up even in the last year or so. But most people just know of Pokemon Go, I'd say right now, as the most successful fitness related game. And that game had a huge IP and a huge company or big company working on it. I also think that in fitness games, there's just a lot of stuff that only now is becoming possible to build due to new hardware coming out, like better tech. And I think we'll see a lot more come up as like the AR glasses come out, for example, or more accessible VR and smarter phones, 
So I, I think the space has a lot coming for it. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's it's there has been a lot of attempts, but I think like we we are at the cusp of probably figuring it out because there's more people going into these things like even even thinking about Steppen, which got people moving to earn, which probably wasn't sustainable, but there's there's models there that make people feel that there there's you know, fitness is intrinsically motivating, but like, how do you, how do you do something around competition, for instance, or, or challenges and things like that? And I think the, the gaming layer there is super interesting. Yeah, definitely. With the introduction of a lot of the move to earn era, a lot of fitness games promise to make people rich by moving. And then I think the <laughs> phrase that sometimes I like to throw around is like, come for the earn and stay for the burn. So people came in a lot to, to earn or they're told by their friends like, hey, you can do this to earn 40 bucks. But if people come in for that and the experience itself isn't solving their fundamental problem, which is I find it hard to work out, then when the rewards disappear, then they also disappear. And it's a very shallow experience. Like maybe there's a huge rush of, I, I love the feeling of earning, but I think there's the second part, that's the hardest part, which is how do you get people to stay and how do you get people to love the movement and the gamification term that's being thrown around? I, I actually don't think gamification has worked really well in previous examples and they aren't very accessible either. Like if you take a, most of these fitness games, I'd say reward people who are the most athletic, like and even step in, like if you are able to jog really fast, you're able to earn the most. And if you're just a walker, you get less sturdy shoes or less expensive shoes. And yeah, I think it's just very hard to be somebody who's coming in for the first time and be like, I will feel accomplished, even if I'm just starting out, like things like Strava as well. And even a game like Zombies Run, which I really am inspired by and have talked to the founders of before, like you still do better if you're fitter. So a lot of what we're thinking about is how you can intrinsically make fitness more fun and somebody can come in and just love the movement and not just love the rewards, not just love the, the extrinsic parts of it. So a lot of what we're thinking about is like, how can you make games more accessible, like fitness games? How can you make people equalized, like regardless of where they're starting out? Can you adapt the gameplay to each player's ability? Can you adapt the game to happen as they're moving? I'd say a close example is Beat Saber. Like people get lost in that game and don't feel like they're exercising, but there aren't many of those. And I think investing in that type of game mechanic is key. And then also introducing a lot of what's more modern gaming. So team aspects like social gaming, having the almost League of Legends Pokemon Unite style game that can last beyond just a kind of short-lived period of time because people are coming back. It's almost like esports. Like, can you turn, we're trying to turn walking and running into like a team sport or an esport where you want to come with your team, you want to play co-op, you want to play PvP, and you don't need new content to come back. So yeah, I feel like there's a lot of cool things that we're looking into. And one last thing that I find interesting is almost bringing more Gen Z into the fitness game category. Like a lot of these fitness products, like you'll look at even like a Nike or a Strava and you'll be like, this looks very intimidating. And there's a lot of fun 
like I'm part of Gen Z, so bring in a lot of that fun social, the more, let's say, social media savvy folks, and even just making a more multiplayer connected experience will create a whole breed of new fitness games. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. And really love the, the move to win kind of analogy there, where it, that's basically what it's all about. Like, going to the next stage as you yeah as you're pushing yourself i want to go back a bit to, to early days and thinking about like getting into this ownership mode like as a teenager what what do you felt like led you to actually start building games like flash and mobile things like that what why specifically game as somebody who started out in art it was very i think it was very fun for a while to like create fan art of things and see that people really liked what I was drawing but I think it did also feel like it was it was too static or too there wasn't much I could push and there are a lot more people that were better than me at art so I didn't really see myself ever being able to make it professionally as an artist so I think as I was drawing I was like okay what are like things I can do to maybe expand my skill set and maybe help me equalize the fact that I'm not that good at art, but I love it. So that turned into animations and animation is still fairly new at the time, like animations on the internet. So I could be like one of the few people posting flash animations back in the day. Now it's a lot more popular, but I was early and I was 15, 16 or 14. I had a lot of time. So I had a lot of time to learn, like, how do I make the best animations? What are the techniques that people are just starting to learn? And then finally, I'd say like, as I learned coding and how to make games themselves, that was so new at the time that any game that was created on DeviantArt, for example, or I'd post on Congregate, like they would just get a lot of attention and uh, it would make it onto like the top 24 viral page. So just seeing a lot of validation, seeing that my skills and my kind of weirdness would create this combination of game that a lot of people want to play was very motivating for me. So it was more like the fact that I saw that people loved what I built and that it was so new that I could be discovered at the time was what made me want to build games. And also I loved building worlds and writing. Like I was, I've always been a big writer. So seeing how I could like doodle on paper, like drawing this character's tragic backstory, figuring out how they die, who's going to cry because of it. Like just tying together all these like character relationships, like building worlds, building features that like introduce the player into the story, thinking about like the emotions they'll face as they go through the level, like discover the dead body, cry because they love the character. Like that was just so fun. So I just inherently also love the idea that you're building worlds and stories that make people scream, cry, laugh. And like YouTube and the era of streaming made me see that for the first time as well. Like seeing some big YouTuber, like look at my game and laugh or look at my game and mm. scream for their audience. Like that was just the kind nice. of a voyeuristic <laughs> interest yeah. for me. So yeah, a lot of things that brought me into the, the, the industry itself. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. The, the point there, like from, from going from, learning things as a hobby and trying things out you you then went to work at these companies like ea network google and you were doing your own projects with your own company as well like like your first company jc soft right so like 
how did you make the leap of faith then to pursue the idea of founding a venture-backed startup? Yeah. And I really loved actually working in bigger companies for a while because I realized it wasn't for me as much too. <laughs> okay. like, I, I loved yeah. Google actually, and I had the best time there and I made a lot of games there. But I think just feeling like I wasn't able to take the creativity that I had, like if I want to make like a cool character, I can't just go and put it into Google Chrome. So it was a very, it felt a little bit more like trapped there. And it wasn't even that I didn't like the work. I think it just didn't feel like I was using everything that I I loved about myself. Like I love how I'm like, I have a lot of ideas and yeah, they just all can't come out when I'm working at a bigger company. And I'd say Network was the smallest company that I worked for. And there they created Legendaries and I think they're working on Heroes Unchained right now. But that was an experience. So I was like, I really think it's like, I would love to be a part of the early days. Like when I, when they are just starting out, like they're so established now that it feels like I'm still like just one piece of the big puzzle and everyone there is like very, very nice. And still it felt like there was something missing. So with JCSoft and with a lot of my games that I was creating, like as a middle schooler, high schooler, like just the love I'd feel for the stuff that I created and the amount that I felt like I could say that I was proud of what I worked on was so different. Like it just felt like night and day, like the stuff that I built was a reflection of my personality, of my my passions. And I think I, I found it very hard to think of how I could translate JCSoft into a venture back startup at first, because I was creating games that I monetized through in-app purchases, ads, rewarded video, like basically everything, every time something new came out, I'd learn. But the amount that I was creating was only enough to support like me as a person. And I was able to cover, for example, my MIT tuition, but that's not necessarily like a venture scale thing. So when I graduated and I did that Niantic contest and we were able to win $300,000, like those were numbers that I hadn't necessarily thought I could, I could hit. And we spent four months on that hackathon project. And that was a lot of money for that amount of time. Like I never seen that many zeros for that short of a time. So that was a moment I was like, with this amount of money, like I could hire a team. Like it doesn't have to be just me because on all the games in the past, I'd worked on everything. Like I was the coder, I was the artist, I was doing all the marketing, I was contacting YouTubers, I was writing the stories. So I never thought I needed a team and having funding and realizing I could hire a team was actually really scary too. So I'd say the moment that Niantic contest happened and we were able to kind of think about whether or not this was worth starting like an actual company out of, I think the decision was actually pretty easy. I was like, let me give this a try. This is the only time I'll get this chance. And yeah, we, we did the whole like VC pitch circuit end of 2021 when we were starting to like run out of our initial funding. And I was talking to actually somebody who was coming to one of the fitness classes that I was teaching and they ended up being a VC. <laughs> so nice. those, they ended up being like our very, very first investors. So in a way, the VC part of it came as a total uh, coincidence and almost luck after I had been in this place where I was running out of funding. So I kind of pitched yeah. out of a little bit of desperation, but also curiosity because we hadn't gotten any VC funding in the past. We had just been bootstrapped. 
Mm. Yeah, like that that leads me to actually ask a lot about like what happened, what's been happening after you raised. I think like fundraising is super challenging, but once you get somebody to commit and to invest, it's a new bag of prob- problems really, or challenges that you're facing as, as you need to start scaling. So what have been the most challenging things about being a, a first-time founder? I'd say that a lot of a lot of what I thought what being a founder is like is different than what I realize now is the reality. Like one of the biggest and most challenging things actually as a game designer, game developer turned CEO is learning or realizing the fact that you're moving away from the act of building games to building a team and building a company. And some of that I actually found really hard as a transition because I was like, I came into this to build games and now why am I delegating building the game to my team and I'm just managing the team and trying to let this vision I have like come into their into their work and it actually was very hard for me to figure out like how much do I still build the game and like how much am I involved do I still code and at first I was like still coding a lot and as I hired people it started going away like each piece being given out to someone else And actually, at some point, I realized I had too many people, actually, that I wasn't able to create the game that I wanted to. And when we ended up like having people leave, kind of normal things that happen, like I realized it actually was okay to step back into some of the things I loved, like going back into game design or going back into coding small things. Like they made me feel like I was still that old self at JCSoft. And I think that was one thing that I had to figure out very uh, I figured out later just balancing the game dev with the management and the business stuff and being somebody who's providing everyone's paychecks. So that was really hard. And then other things that are really hard are just knowing how to how to build the right, almost like the right company in terms of like setting it up was very hard. There's a lot of tax, a lot of compliance, and just a lot of things that you can do wrong. And I think just stumbling through that for the first time, there was a lot of like fear in my mind, like, oh, I definitely did something wrong. Like, should I have given an offer like that? Or should I have talked to someone like that? Or how much can I share with my team? I'm a very like transparent person in general, but learning that there's a line to draw between like how much you can share with your team and how much you should keep to yourself or share with your co-founder is very also challenging having never really worked with a team before as well. So that was definitely something that I I have not, I didn't realize coming in. And the final thing I'd say is I realized that a lot of what I did and what I said was going to be taken much more seriously by like my team. So I can't really just say what's on my mind. And I have to almost like think carefully about like how I'm projecting like the vision of our team or the vision of our game and be more decisive because I'm very indecisive sometimes. I'm like, I'm an artist. Like, I just want to make something that's art. And now it's a business and that's very different. And people like kind of cling on to what you say. And that's a new experience that I haven't had before. Mm, Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Have you, have you recognized like ways to learn to be a founder that don't come from actually like doing things and learning? Have you used like external people 
external material, things like that to help you. One resource that I use is the elite game developers. Oh, good. Uh, so yeah. I'll like, there's one thing that I, I, that I really appreciate from one of the articles I read was like the CEO's calendar. Mm. That was one thing I never realized. It's like spend a couple hours Sunday planning the rest of your week. Now that's exactly what I do. Like I'll color my calendar. I'll put in time blocks. And I didn't know that coming in, like I had a more ad hoc approach to everything. And I think also aside from just reading articles or listening to podcasts, just having mentors was really helpful because I was yeah. fairly young when I started. Like I started making games at 12 and then I sold games when I was 14 and started the company when I was 21 or 22 or started to loaf at 22-ish. So a lot of my mentors in the space who'd like been in it for a while, like they were the people like I would tell things like, oh, I have like this big there anything from like, I have a big design challenge to like, I have an interpersonal like team issue. Like two people are angry at each other. What do I do? Like, there's no way to know what to do if you've never had a company before, or like I'm dealing yeah. with this person leaving my team or I'm, I'm trying to hire these two people. and I don't know who to choose. Those were moments that I like talked to my mentors and kind of bounce things off. I'd have a almost once a month check-in with a lot of the mentors I had. And other than that, like most recently I got a coach executive coach who is also really helpful. Just seeing your blind spots is helpful because you don't have somebody to check you as a CEO founder. Like you're not having the type of feedback. You're not collecting the same feedback that people on your team are getting from like one-on-ones, for example, you can get feedback. Like I've asked for feedback from my team, but it's not the same. So having that coach is really helpful. And then I also have a therapist. So it's like kind of having the professional and then the personal side too, like growing at the same time. Cause I'm, I feel like through the company, like I'm personally growing a lot and I, as a leader, like you almost have to be like a more self-aware person because otherwise you're going to run a company and people aren't going to like being there, or you're not going to realize that you're being toxic or you're hurting your employees or coworkers more than you think. So I think it almost forces me to want to be a better human. And that's why like having all these external sources checking me is, is really helpful. Yeah. Amazing. I think you're doing all the right things for sure. Hey, I wanted to talk about the approach to company values and mission and this kind of vision setting. What kind of approach have you taken at, at Telofa? When I first started the company, I had read a lot of books that were like, set your vision <laughs> right out the gate. Like, make sure you have your values. And I, as a result, like wrote a couple of values, like shared them with the team. I was like, this is our mission and this is our vision. And a lot of it ended up feeling very fake. I think because the team hadn't come to it together, I was just like dictating like very generic values. They were just feel good. It was like, oh, always like work hard, like give people recognition. Like it felt very it didn't feel true to our team necessarily. And because it also started out as like my family as well, like it was, I was just like, we're a family, like that's our value. And I think that's the most, probably like the, the most generic or cliche value to have, because what does it mean to be family? Like, does it mean you drop everything to help them? Like, does it mean you never leave? Like a family never dissolves. Like that's also not healthy. I think people will leave, people stay more over time. Like instead of just creating values that were feel good and like, we're like about staying together forever. And 
being hardworking, like I just started to see values come up from the way that the team operated. And I think a lot of it came from the people themselves and not me, where like, if I say, I think one that we realized was vulnerability on the team, like I myself was a very, I try to be transparent and vulnerable with the team and started to see that people do that themselves. So it was something that I'd almost see as like an active choice. Like I can choose to be vulnerable or could choose to not be at this moment. And by choosing that, like that's actually a value rather than saying like, we're all family. Like you don't feel like you can't really choose to do that. And it's not something that feels like a choice to make on the daily. So vulnerability is one that I, we ended up kind of settling down as like, this is a true value that we have. And then the other one that we ended up seeing almost develop from the team itself was gratitude and like people shouting each other out. We have a, we have an actual like gratitudes channel in our Slack that people will use. And every week we have a gratitude check-in. So you like shout someone out who did something awesome that week. And only when it became part of the processes for the company, did it feel like it was a value that could be accurately stated. And that's how I've approached the values is just like noticing things like this, where like we've built it into the process. You've built it into the day-to-day of people on the team, instead of being like this aspirational feel good thing that you never really hit. And I'd say the last thing is that, yeah, I used to think that values were making everyone happy and like what should be the right thing to do. I think people being happy isn't necessarily, doesn't mean you have the healthiest company culture. Like some people just won't fit everyone happy. Maybe some people just don't fit the culture. And in that case, the values are almost a filter you use to determine if somebody should be on the team or not. So that's like what I've been figuring out over time is like having values that aren't all inclusive and more specific to like, this is our team and these values may not apply to another team. So yeah, Mm. that's what I've learned. Yeah. Yeah. You put it really simply and, and that's, that's the whole, whole way of utilizing the values is to see like, is somebody part of the team? How did you start picking up hiring skills and team building skills? Like besides knowing like values are now very effective, like, because you had earlier projects where you were like in your career, where you had the opportunity to pick up skills like, you know, at Google and Network. How did those help you in becoming a manager? I think that being on my own, <laughs> working on games for a long time definitely didn't help me learn how to be on a team much. So it was like being at those bigger companies where I saw the team building aspects come into play. And honestly, I stole a lot of things that I saw like on my various teams where, yeah, my Google team would have like a Friday show and tell or like a Friday, like shout out moments. So I took that and I was like, let's use that. And I've also like had a lot of, I've learned a lot from even sitting in on my friends' companies meetings where I'd be on a fly on the wall and see how they run their companies. So I had the privilege of doing that with my friend, Sam at Butterscotch. They made Level Head and Crashlands. And I just sat in on their weekly scrum. So I sat there and watched as Mm -hmm. Sam like ran the meetings. So that's actually where I, I learned to imitate a lot of things that he did and figured out like what was working. So that helped. And then working on these teams, like at Network, for example, like I was a gameplay engineer on an engineering team. So it's very different from being a CEO 
and also very different from managing, but I saw how my, like the questions that I'd get asked for one-on-ones, like I'd write them down, like, oh, this seems like a good question. And I learned a lot from that experience in terms of like, what did I find that made me feel heard? And what did they do to like really empower me? And I used a lot of those in terms of my, the way I run my team. Like, for example, my manager at Google was very, uh, he was like my friend. Like he (laughs) asked me about like my personal life, asked me like what I like to do and asked to like do things together. So even outside of work. So I saw that, yeah, you can actually be friends with your manager, obviously with some, some boundaries, but I liked the, the feeling of ease that I had with him. And that's where I, I wanted to be like that more servant leadership style. Like I'm here to help you. Like we're on the same side. So yeah, I'd say between like sitting in people's actual meetings, like having experience Mm. working on bigger companies and also just like over time, my mentors also helped me because they'll like nitpick at stuff that I do now. But those really helped because you don't know, I didn't know what it meant to be a good leader when I started. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't heard of this, like that you actually go and sit down and watch somebody else run their company. That's really amazing idea. Very cool. And you can do it sort of like the other way that then they come and and see how you operate and you're learning from both. Yeah. It's just an external appraisal in a way, like having somebody Mm. come in, I think is just as helpful as somebody you going into somewhere else. Cause if somebody comes in and you change your behavior to like be more like confident or more transparent or something, then there's probably something wrong. But if you're just like running the company as you usually do, even if somebody is there and they can give you feedback, then I think you'll just see a lot more of your blind spots. Yeah. Amazing. Like one thing that I write a lot about is mental health of health of entrepreneurs. I think it's, something that doesn't get covered enough, you know, in venture beat articles and stuff like that. How do you make mental health a priority for yourself as a, as a first time founder and trying to build a venture back company? How do you also like foster the idea, idea internally at your company that mental health is a priority? Yeah. Mental health is something that I've both I think even before the company like really values, like a lot of my games actually were about mental health. Like they're creepy and cute, but also they're about mental health, which is an interesting juxtaposition, but it's always been something that I've like, I've always wanted. Like when I thought about like what people would talk about when they're on my team or even when they're off is like this team valued my mental health and they didn't undervalue me or didn't force me to like crunch to the point that I just burned out completely. So what I do in terms of my team is that I'll often, like even in one-on-ones, for example, like try to just get a little bit more personal, just asking what they're, what's going on in their personal life. But also like we often have people take like mental health days and having that be an option in terms of the availability or out of office form submissions that we have. So they can choose that as one of the options. And I think that also makes it more, uh, it feels less intimidating to say like, Hey, I just need a mental health day and not just say that I'm sick, for example. So that's one thing that's really helped. And even just in my own team being asking for help when I've hit my limits, like I, Hey guys, like, can somebody just take the discord for the day? Like I'm a little overwhelmed. I don't think I can handle it. Just language like that really helps. And 
for myself, like I will, because I use my calendar and live and die by my calendar, I'll like put <laughs> mental health into my calendar. Like I'll have blocks where I'm like, this is where I meditate. Like every day of a 30 minute block called meditate because like I see it as a checklist. If it's on my checklist, I'm going to do it. That's definitely one way that I force myself to do it. And I also have my teammates check in on me too. Like it's not just me checking on them, but they'll ask me like, Hey, like you seem overwhelmed. Like, how can I help? So it's like a two-way street and one other, like more maybe applicable way I do this in my company is that we have this thing called color status, which is every day in our daily standup, people can say they're green, yellow, or red. And green means like, everything's fine. Like I'm doing great. Yellow is like, I'm a little delayed. Like I'm having some trouble. I'm really busy. Red is like, I'm overwhelmed. This feature is going to get delayed. I am blocked. And like by using almost like the colors instead of like making people say words, like we can, I can kind of see and together with my producer, like we'll check in on people who are yellow or red. And it's a very almost just non, it doesn't take a lot of effort for them to say that they need help. And we check in with them proactively based on that color status. So that's been really helpful. Like every time somebody is red, usually like so overwhelmed, they don't even want to ask for help. So by answering that question in our daily standup, they're, they're allowing us to go to them first. In the past, I've had people be red, but when we didn't have the question, they'd just be really angry or resentful because they are overwhelmed and nobody's helping them. So, yeah. 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 That makes sense. Really good. Last question, Jenny, before we go to the final questions of the show, if you if you confront somebody coming a first-time founder of a venture-backed startup, what kind of advice would you share about the, the first steps that they, they're going to be taking that you've learned so far? In terms of the first steps, there's very logistical things I can share, yeah. like get a <laughs> incorporate the company, find a CPA accountant <laughs> and set up everything like before it becomes, yeah, basically automate all the stuff that's like business related so that you never have to think about it. So like I got an mm. accountant really early. My mom helps out in terms of like making sure that our books look good. And yeah, we also have an external person helping out there. So I don't really have to think about it anymore, but if I used to like look at every single notice I got from the government and like have to fill yeah. out all the paperwork and it just takes a lot of time to so yeah, automate that as much as possible. And then I'd say as soon as possible to like find a, find a coach or somebody who you can actually like use as your mentor or person to like check you as you grow the team, because like, they're even like holding you accountable. Like if you say you want to build a good team culture and a month later, people are working mm -hmm. like weekends and off hours, then you probably, it feels worse to have somebody there and calling you out on it. So that's also one thing that I get really early on. This is one thing I wish I did earlier, but actually having like the team conversation around like values and aligning people's motivations and even just meeting in person, like we still haven't met the whole team in person yet, but like having a meeting where you're just like, what do we care about? Like, what are our values? and writing them down. Like I never did that. And we kind of grandfathered a lot of stuff in over time. I would do that a lot earlier on. So, you know, like what the, what the team values are kind of outright. Final thing I'd give as advice is just to be a little bit more shameless. Like I found this happening to myself where for my, like all my games in the past, like I felt like there were no stakes. Like I was just making games and putting them out 
And now that I raise VC funding, there's this feeling of, I need it to be perfect. Like I must make the best game ever. My first game will be the biggest success. And as a result, like I found myself like not wanting to put stuff out and like almost checking myself. I'm like, I used to be this like crazy person putting out games every other day. And now I'm taking a year to make a game, like what's going on. So yeah, definitely be a little bit more shameless because people aren't necessarily like even VCs, I think don't expect that everyone will succeed first time out the gate. So failing faster is what I, I wish I had known a little bit earlier and would advise people to, to just like put stuff out sooner. Like after we put out our stuff, like it was a lot more clear to us, like what was working, what wasn't. Nice. Yeah. Really good ones. Hey, final questions for you, Jenny. Do you have a favorite book or something that you really want to, to mention here? Yeah, so I have two. Oh, that's not cheating. The first no, is how to win friends and influence people. Yeah. But yeah, how to win friends and influence people. I was given that by my dad right before I entered college because he told me that I didn't seem to have a lot of friends at the time. And I read the <laughs> book and I realized like I spent so much time making games. I didn't realize a lot of these soft skills. And it actually helps a lot in terms of being a founder because you have to network a lot. And like networking is just making friends in the business. And for me, just learning like how to listen and how to be somebody that people want to talk to and will listen to them is important. So yeah, more of my opportunities in this industry have been through friendships and people that I knew, like the Niantic contest was like through one of my mentors and the VC was somebody who came to my fitness class. So there's all these like little things and opportunities to be lucky that I feel like happened because I was making friends and going to events. So yeah, that book helped me a lot. And then the, the maybe lesser known book is the artist way by Julia Cameron. And I like that because I was reading it in a period where I felt really burned out. And it's a book about finding your inner child and what your inner child loves to do. So like, it'd be like, go back to like what you love to do on the playground or what makes you like as happy as a child. And it told you to do things like go to a movie by yourself or go eat by yourself and like figure out what you do when nobody's watching. And that was very powerful because as a founder, like so many people are watching and so sometimes you don't remember what you love to do anymore. And it's just like very you get to like a very like low point in your life. And that book really gave me some exercises to like bring me back into what I loved and like passion is fleeting. But I think when you know you love something, you know, and it's like a root thing that you love in your life, it helps. So that, that book was really helpful and it's like a workbook. So you work through it over, I think 12 weeks or something. Nice. I need to do that. <laughs> Too, too many podcasts, too many newsletters. <laughs> Do you have a story that shaped you and how you approach your work today? I think that moment that's been most impactful for me so far is when the moment that I, so my dad is my co-founder. He's the one I started the company with. And I have never seen, he always talks about this, that he's like, I never cry. <laughs> I'm like, I, yeah, I've never seen you cry. Oh, uh, he'll, and like he's somebody that I really look up to, but the moment that we had won that Niantic contest, like the moment they called our names as first place, like he was just bawling. And I think the moment I saw that, I was like, this is the joy you can feel from working on something so near and dear to people that it moves them to cry. <laughs> like for the first time in what, like 50 years or something. 
So I think that made me feel like, wow, like what we're doing, the work that we're doing is real and it makes, it can make a real difference in people's lives. Like my dad firsthand had had that experience. And I think just the satisfaction you have from like knowing that you busted your butt working on something together with somebody and the experience that you go through together is like just so pivotal. And I think I just remember that a lot in one, cause it was like something I hadn't really seen before with him. And then two, because it was recorded on camera. So <laughs> there's like a Niantic video out there, <laughs> which shows him like crying and us talking about like how meaningful that moment was for us. So yeah, I guess everyone who looks up our company now will see him cry. <laughs> so I can't forget about it anymore. But I always think yeah. back to that video when I think about like, why is this work meaningful and like how much it's like brought my family together. So yeah, I think in everything I do, I want to have that like amount of bonding and amount of like personal investment and just like emotion that I had at that moment. So yeah. Amazing. Just amazing. Yeah. Hey, final question, Jenny. What's the best way for the podcast audience to get in contact with, with you or try the game or get in, get involved? Yeah, yeah. So they can always reach me at my email, which is jenny at talofagames.com. And that's T-A-L-O-F-A games.com. We also have a website, www.talofagames.com. And that's where people can actually sign up for our current game. It's an open beta and I'm also on Twitter at uh, xujennyc, so at gmail, oh, not gmail, <laughs> Twitter at xujennyc, so that's my handle. We also have a Twitter for the game called Telofa Games, but I am reachable on both of them. Perfect. Yeah, this is so good. Really interesting story that you, you're, you're building here with, with your company and everything. All the best to the journey. Thank you, and thanks for having me on. Sure, it's great. Hey, take care, Jenny. Speak soon. Bye-bye. Thanks again to my guests for joining the show. If you have time, please go and sign up to our newsletter at EliteGameDevelopers.com slash newsletter. Since every Friday morning, I send out a piece on gaming startups, what I've experienced recently as an investor, Things that I'm seeing and thinking about, I really want to share a lot to you guys. So if you have time, please subscribe to the newsletter. That would be awesome. And I'll see you next week on the podcast. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>